Uh, let me ask you, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Apparently, I do not make smoothies the way that you're supposed to make them. I put all sorts of things in them, like cashews, chia seeds, paleo granola, coconut flakes. So I have very protein-rich smoothies every morning. Hi, I'm Tim. Welcome to We're Only Human, a podcast of stories of ordinary people welcoming change into their life. Sometimes that change is our own doing. Sometimes that change barrels into our lives, whether we like it or not. This isn't a three-minute interview that you see on your favorite late-night talk show. We're going deep here. We're going deep into who we are and how we grow. And we're often asking questions that my guests have not been asked before. The goal is simple. We can learn from each other. We're not perfect. We're not alone. We're only human. Today, I am joined by Hannah Michelotti. She's a daughter, sister, wife, public speaking coach, and the founder of Articulate. And Hannah, I want to start here. You've, well, I don't know if you publicly said, yeah, because I all the research I did was public. You found your life's purpose. Yes. Yes. And I want to first understand what is that life's purpose? And then I'm going to follow up with, well, how the hell did you find it? What is your life's purpose? <laughs> yes. So my life's purpose, I... I don't know if I always disclose that, especially to certain kinds of clients. I feel like corporate clients are very receptive to that, but I feel like other kinds of clients are, and maybe corporate clients are, but essentially my life purpose, I was put on the planet earth to help people with public speaking and help them to become confident and comfortable in it. And I was put on the earth to also do public speaking myself and share stories. Why do you think corporate clients wouldn't be receptive to that? That sounds like I, I would be so excited to meet you and learn more. If I heard you that, know what? you know. So having worked in corporate America for almost 10 years, there was this sense I got that you kept your personal life personal and then you had this work facade. And I think outwardly it's this work facade and a life's purpose is really touchy-feely. It's more self-reflective versus work, which is kind of the, the surface level. It's what you can see above the ocean. And then underneath is everybody's surface level and all the fish and the currents. And it's just whether or not people are open to talking about it. it I, I kind of put it in like the wooey category. It's not as wooey as like astrology or, you know, signs in the sky, but it, it certainly takes a certain kind of person who wants to get on that level with you and be like, wow, this is why you were put on planet Earth and you know why and accept that. I, I don't know if that's a great answer, but I, I just feel like a lot of corporations either seem to be closed off or having worked in them, I felt that they were closed off and not receptive to that concept. I totally agree with you. I feel, and I think you said it very well there. I, why is it that when we are talking about work, or professional life, so often we don't want to acknowledge that we're human. Like we don't want to acknowledge that we're actual people who have more beneath, I love how you said that, beneath the ocean there. I don't know, but I've, I've felt that way. I remember when I started my first job, I wanted to know my coworkers. I yeah. wanted to 
actually know them, not just hear what they said to customers. I wanted to know what kind of music they listened to and what they did on the weekends. And I wanted to know what they felt about things. And not everyone is open to that, which is fine. But also it just seemed to be poo-pooed. It was like, well, that's not what we're here for. When in truth, you have the best teams and the best collaboration when people are open about their personal lives. Yes, there are lines and boundaries, but that's when you have the greatest connection on a team is when everybody is in sync and they know about each other and they're able to complement each other and help each other kind of like the scales of justice, you know, where the, the skills and balances work out for each player on the team. I just reread this book again called um, Dream Teams. It's by Shane Snow. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's I think all- that I have. I highly recommend it uh, both to you and anyone listening to this, but it's all about like dream teams and not just sports, but um, you know, government and corporate and just all sorts of, when you gather together dream teams of people that accomplish great things, like how do we do that without falling apart? And I, the reason I bring it up is because I'm reminded of there's two key parts of it, which is perspective and heuristics, which is how we, (sighs) the the unique perspectives we each bring to the table and how that's how we see things. And then heuristics, how we deal with things. And the whole point is what you just said, that if we all open up and share those two things with each other, that's how you create a dream team. I think what we've just discovered here is most organizations aren't set up to create a dream team. I don't think that they are. And I also think that that requires your employees to be vulnerable and being vulnerable is really uncomfortable for some people, especially high functioning, um, aggressive, powerful people. It, that's that's like the last thing they want to do is get vulnerable and share personal things about themselves. So it's just much easier to do work and be closed off. Yeah, they've got surface level humor and they're able to connect with the team, but not really connect with the team. Yeah, I think vulnerability is a very big part of it. Yeah. So you were in corporate America. Yes. So you were one of these folks. Well, you weren't one of these folks. You were probably like me trying to get to these folks and say, hey, I'm a human. Um but you're not in corporate America anymore. I'm guessing the finding of your life's purpose happened somewhere between those two events. It did. Yes. I was in four different roles in corporate America. And in the last role, I worked for Under Armour in Portland, Oregon, the office, the office, the company is headquartered in Baltimore, Maryland, but they have an office in Portland. And it was kind of supposed to be this competitor to Nike and Adidas and Columbia that were all next door. And I I liked that feeling. It was this underdog story. I really resonated with that because growing up and playing sports, I felt like I was an underdog and people treated me that way based on what they could see. I was very small growing up. So I didn't have the advantage of weight or height in a lot of sports, which people assumed if you didn't have that, you couldn't be skilled. And I really wanted to prove them wrong. So I just felt like this was a great company for me to work for. And it was in the beginning and I had the most wonderful team and we jived and we were successful. But in the end, it wasn't such a great company to work for and the team had changed so much. So I decided to step away voluntarily and then my grandfather passed away, which I don't think I've ever shared on a podcast or publicly. Um, I'm so sorry friends. to hear that. Yeah. Um, My goal when I left Under Armour was to spend more time with family and more time with friends. Those are the only two goals. 
because I was flying over to Baltimore, Maryland twice a month usually and for about a week to two weeks every time. So I was not in Portland, Oregon, which is where I live full time for like half the month. And so I wasn't able to see family and friends. I was missing birthdays. I was, you know, missing nominal holidays. So I just wanted to spend time with the people that I loved. And two days after I quit, my grandfather died. And it's pretty awful that it has to be a life event that forces you to realize something about yourself. But after he passed, I remember I just started sitting with myself thinking, I'm done working for somebody else, building somebody else's empire, doing something that isn't fruitful and doesn't benefit um, my purpose. You know, I want to know why I'm on the planet. Not everyone does, but I wanted to know. And within probably less than a month, I was like, oh my gosh, I want to be a full-time public speaking coach. And my husband was like, duh. I was like, excuse me? He was like, yeah, if you were to ask any of your family or friends what you what you'd be talented at or what role you could have and you told them you were going to be a public speaking coach they'd be like oh yeah hannah's awesome at that she's probably been doing that since she was 12 and i have but it's like steve jobs said it's easy to connect the dots when you're looking backwards but you can't connect the dots going forwards so i decided to go full-time and be a public speaking coach and help people do one of the scariest things that requires being vulnerable, that requires needing confidence and requires wanting to feel authentic because so many people get tossed this horrible advice, like picture your audience naked, just speak louder, make jokes, which doesn't apply to everyone. You have to be authentic in who you are as a speaker in order to not only feel confident and comfortable, but to really connect with an audience. I'm always reminded of that. I don't know if you're familiar with Jerry Seinfeld or his stand-up comedy, but he has that bit about how the, um, was it the biggest, the thing we're most scared of is public speaking. So if we had to go to a funeral, we'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. Yes. I reference that all the time and I do cite (laughs) him. It's not my quote. It's Jerry Seinfeld's quote, but it's absolutely true. So when your husband, when you, t- when you tell your husband, I want to be a public speaking coach, he says, oh, yeah, of course you should. How did you not know that? I knew that. But how did you get to that point where you even were like, you know what? This is what I want. Like, like you're done with corporate America. Your grandfather, unfortunately, passes away. And then you all of a sudden sort of have this light bulb moment. But is that what it was? A light bulb moment? Was this more of like, oh, wait, I knew this all along? It was kind of this melange hodgepodge of things. So when I left Under Armour, I knew that I had two different vacations coming up. One was to Italy and I'd never been to Italy before, which my last name is Michelotti. I am partly Italian. My grandfather was, uh, he was half Italian and my grand, my great grandmother was Norwegian. So he was half Italian and half Norwegian. And I always wanted to go to the place where he was from because we still know our relatives there and they speak English. So I, it felt kind of full circle that he had passed and I was going to Italy and I was going to Tuscany, which is the region that we're from. And we didn't actually get to the relative's house. It was further away than we thought. And my gosh, driving in Italy is terrifying. I do not recommend it. Like they truly do drive like bats out of hell on the road. It was unsafe, (laughs) but it felt, it felt kind of full circle to be there. And it gave me a lot of time to think. And at the same time, I got really interested in storytelling 
there's a storytelling show called The Moth. You might be familiar with it. It's a podcast. It's also it also takes place well before coronavirus in person. They did live shows. People always told me I had great stories. So I thought, well, I should I should try storytelling. That'd be fun. I love to make people laugh. I love to get on stage and show people that there are things that have happened to me that I've made it through. So if those things are happening to them, they can make it through as well. So I started to put together these pieces in my mind. I was like, you know, I'm kind of like weirdly going back to my roots, even though I'm only an eighth Italian and I'm really into storytelling. But also I've been coaching people for 10 years in public speaking. That's not new. That's something that I've done on the side. I did it during lunch breaks. I did it after work. I did it for friends and family. I helped people interview. And these pieces just kind of started coming together in my brain. And within that period of time in Italy, I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. This it, it just sits really well in my gut. It's just, I can't really explain it. It's like the best fitting clothing you've ever had in your life. That's never going to fray or break down that you don't need to get dry cleaned. It just fits all the time. And it's the best color on you. That's your life purpose. And that's public speaking for me. So you could call it a light bulb moment, but it was, it was a six week light bulb brightening. Brightening. I like that light bulb. Yeah. brightening. <laughs> The Moth is, I'm a little familiar, is that where, I mean, it's a live event. Is it just whoever wants to can come up on stage, tell a story, or is there some sort of like format to it that's followed? There's a format. I jokingly tell people about the format. So they post online the theme. So the theme could be intentions or the theme could be, there's one coming up, it's called enthusiasm or animals. And I posit that there are two schools of people that go to the moth. There's one, the people that want to go and they just want to listen. Maybe they're with their friends. They just want to hear some great stories. You have to tell a true five minute story about yourself on theme. Then there are people like me who go and they've prepared a story, but it's not over-prepared. And then when you actually get to the event itself, you get to put your name on a piece of paper and they stick it in a hat and it's random. They draw names out of the hat. But what happens is that first group of people who were just going to sit and listen to stories, they've now had two glasses of wine. And they're like, I have a story to tell on animals. Oh, no. <laughs> and so they write their name down and they put it in the hat. So you get this blend of people who have liquid courage and their friends are like, come on, come on, you can do it. And they've never practiced the story before in an onstage format. You know, they've only told it to family and friends, which is totally fine. And then you have people like me who have diligently timed it so that it's five minutes long, but haven't over-practiced. And you're just crossing your fingers that your name gets called. They only call 10 names a night. They have an intermission after five. And then you get openly judged. There are three groups of judges in the audience and they score you on your story and the best score wins the night and you win the story slam and you get to go on to your city's grand slam, which is a combination of all the other story slam winners. How did you feel the very first time they called your name, picked your name out of the hat and said, Hannah, you're up? Oh, I mean, you know that feeling when you're on an airplane and turbulence hits and parts of your body that are seated clench? Oh, that's it's a bad that feeling. feeling. It's that feeling. You're like, oh my gosh, I put my name in the hat. Oh, they've actually called my name. And you kind of get the shakes and you just, 
head on up there and you probably hit the microphone with your face the first time. But yeah, I felt, ooh, I was just clenched all over and couldn't believe it. The, the MC in Portland always makes a joke of, um, I want you all to imagine that your friend put your name in the hat while you went to the bathroom and your name just got called. I want you to imagine what that must feel like, the betrayal of your friend <laughs> and <laughs> the sheer panic and fear. And that usually gets the whole audience to go, oh, okay, I, I understand the feeling. So yeah, it's, it's nerve-wracking. I will be the first to tell you I still get nervous. How long into being on stage do you start to feel like, oh, wait, this is home? Probably takes 30 seconds. It's, it's within the first couple of chuckles that I feel more comfortable. I love making people laugh. I love making people smile. I, I love making people feel good. So when I get that chuckle, I'm like, okay, okay, I'm on a roll. So it's sort of like that, uh, the feedback, like the sort of acknowledgement of I'm on the right track here. People are responding to what I have to give. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And knowing that if they keep listening, there will be some guffaws later on. Just keep listening. This is only the entree. <laughs> How many times have you done the moth then in person? I think I've done it over 10 times. I used to keep track, but I, I can't remember. Oh, wow. So it's almost, yeah. I mean, it's old hat by now. It is. And I need to do it at the virtual event because I really miss it. I miss the stories. I miss the people. I miss the community. I miss the whole concept. I, I absolutely fell in love with it and the people that I met. So you're in Italy and then you sort of have this brightening and you think, all right, I got it. This is my life's purpose. Did you come back and say, all right, I'm someone mentioned I should go hop on the moth stage. I'm going to go try this. Like, I imagine there had to be a moment now of like, I've felt what it is I want to be and what I want to do. But now I have to like put myself out there. And that might feel a little odd or awkward. Yes, it, it, that's exactly it. Now I, now I actually have to go do the thing. Now I have to actually yep. go say what I do, what I said I was going to do. So I was talking with my one of my closest, oldest friends, I've known her since I was five. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. And I've got about a year of runway. And she was like, oh my gosh. She was like, okay. And I said, yeah, and I'm going to do the moth. And she was like, okay, well, let's put a date in the calendar and you have to do the moth by then. And I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> she was my accountability partner. I was, <laughs> I, I expect nothing less from her. It was so great that she said that, but I was like, okay, yeah, that means I'm doing it. And we had set the date that I had to be on the moth stage, or at least I had to put my name in the hat to be on the stage by November. And this was back in August or September. And in October, I put my name in the hat. And then that was that very first time. And that began, well, nine more times after that. So it wasn't terrible. It was, oh no, it was, it was so much fun. And the other thing I started doing too, is I started doing a ton of personal reflection and growth. So that first time I went to the moth, I went alone. I didn't bring anyone with me. I stood in line alone. I had to make friends who were sitting next to me. Uh, you know, there was no one to save my seat. There was no one to say, Hey, nice job or better luck next time. It forced me to get comfortable doing things on my own. And it forced me to grow because when we do new things in new places with new people, we grow. 
and I was in a major growth spurt and I knew I needed to grow. I, I still need to grow as a coach. I know that, but I knew I needed to improve and grow and expand my world. So I went alone. I didn't know anybody and I put my name in the hat. You went alone on purpose. So did you feel like you had not had many like solo experiences before? Like you wanted to intentionally create this and not put yourself through it, but grow, like you said, grow through that unique experience? I did. I've never been to a movie alone that I can remember. Me I've, either. This I've is why I'm interested in this. I'm the same way. <laughs> I've heard it's very gratifying, but I, of course, I'm not going to go now with the virus. Yeah. I've certainly been to coffee shops alone. I've been to restaurants alone, but I'd never been to a live show with a solo ticket by myself. And I did want to sit in that, that discomfort because we don't grow when we're not uncomfortable. So I just wanted to plot myself quite physically in discomfort. You are sitting on a chair with no back next to people that you don't know. And better yet, when I got there, the MC said, can we have everyone raise their hand if they have an empty seat next to them? Oh. So I'm not only alone, <laughs> but I'm being I'm being flagged down. I'm like, hey, I have no one else here. Come on and be my friend. Sit on down next to me. And I, I ended up chit-chatting with the lady next to me, and she had a wonderful Greek last name that I'll never be able to repeat. Her name got called too, and we just got to chatting. Oh, that's fa- I love how you said that's fantastic. I love how you said to sit in the discomfort because I'm thinking, as I said, I have not done last year. I did the uh, solo traveling by myself for the first time in my life. I went to the Whoa. Florida Keys for a couple of days, camped, did everything by myself. And it was the most, going into it, the most uncomfortable thing. But what you just said resonates because I, f- I knew I was going to be uncomfortable. I was forcing myself to sit in the discomfort. I'm curious, how do you prepare yourself to go sit in the discomfort? I just did it recently. Again, I went backpacking for the first time in 17 years. I am an avid hiker. I've discovered I love mountain climbing. And I know that there are things in my life that I want to see that require me to forego a shower and a hotel room that require me to stay in the wilderness. Like you cannot actually summit some of these mountains that I want to summit without doing a full 24 hours. Like you just can't get in and out in time. It's not possible. So I knew that I had to backpack. And for me, that was so uncomfortable. So when I go into a zone of discomfort, I try to accommodate myself as best I can. So at the moth, I wanted to feel good. So I wore clothing that felt good. I blow dried my hair. I I got there early. <laughs> I, I was like, okay, the last thing I want is to be alone and late. Then there's no seat. Then I'm the person that's like, hi, can I sit next to you? I got a drink because I knew that would calm down my nerves. When it came to backpacking, I love food. I eat more than my husband. So I knew that I needed to pack food that would make me feel good. So lots of gummy bears, lots of salty things, protein. I just, I I give myself kind of creature comforts as well as kind of some speaking techniques. They're not speaking techniques, but they're techniques behind the scenes that will make you feel more confident as a speaker to settle the discomfort. It's still there but it helps you to better wrap your brain around it because you're either physically wearing something that helps you feel more comfortable. It could be a backpack to be prepared. It could be clothing. And it's also a mindset shift. 
So instead of telling myself, will this go well or not, which is a yes or no question, I ask myself, how can I make this go well tonight? How can I make this a positive experience? And then your brain is forced to think in a different direction. It is forced to find a solution versus a yes or no answer. Oh, I love that. Because then you've already locked in on, no, it's going to be good. How do I get it there? Exactly. Oh, that's fantastic. You also brought your dog Maggie with, right? Oh, I, she did not go backpacking. Oh, she, Actually, go backpacking. she was Oh, she was so upset. She was oh. angry, dejected, <laughs> all of the negative emotions. She knows my pack and she knew she for whatever reason recognized the big backpacking pack and she kept sniffing it every night and apparently while I was gone, she would check the door multiple times a night to see if I was coming home. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Yeah, she's very sensitive. (laughs) (laughs) So when you when you left your corporate job, you left it obviously intentionally. But did you have like when you made that decision and that last day came, did you have a plan for the next day? The very next day, I don't think I had a plan for the very next day. I think it was simply to go get coffee with my cousins, following that mantra of spending time with friends and family. Long term, though, I had a non-compete, which means that you're not allowed to work for a competitor for a certain period of time, or at least I thought I did. So it was going to be a six-month period of time where I wasn't able to work for a competitor. So I was kind of seeing it as this period of time of six months off of that kind of work, but on for another kind of work. So I was, I was also looking at it kind of as a hiatus. You know, I've been working since I was 18 in jobs that the government or the tracking device in my neck can track. And I've been working much longer, you know, babysitting and things like that. So that would have been the first time in my life that I had taken six months off. So I was kind of planning on that. But knowing who I am, that that didn't work out. I didn't take six months off. But it at least gave you a moment to breathe. It did. It gave me a moment to breathe. And it, it I allowed myself to mentally think, this is okay if you're not working, which was more than enough for me. I think that alone is worth its weight in gold. I mean, that's such a, at least here in America, we are everything from kindergarten to middle school to high school to college is all preparing you for you're going to work. And if you're not working, you've failed in some way. Agreed. And I will be the first to say that I have fallen into that trap and I have had that mindset of if I just work harder and I grind more and work more hours, I'll be more productive and create more things. And I've started to find probably in the last two years that I actually function really well with a four day work week and not working Fridays. Can I do it every week? No. But I I do really well when I allow my brain to do something other than work. We all do, interestingly enough. And the European model, I think, is spectacular, especially in France, where they, I mean, France can be a little lax, in my opinion, but they, (laughs) uh, I, I lived in France in college, and then I nannied in Belgium after college. So I've got a fairly good understanding culturally of their work life balance. And my host sister, 
asked me how many hours a week I worked. And so I told her and she was like, oh, mais non, c'est pas vrai. She was like, oh my God, no, that's not possible. Like it's not, there's no way that's possible. I said, well, how many hours do you work? And she was like 35 tops. I can't work anymore. And I said, Phew, you should try telling that to a bunch of Americans. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> and see, she's proving it's possible. <laughs> it, it is possible. And I think it's, I think it's possible because it's cultural. Yeah, that's a good point. So speaking of, of college, so when you were 22, this theme of trying to find your life's purpose, it seems like this wasn't, this has always been a part of your life. 22, you do this book that kind of helps you and you find out your purpose is teaching. So you're going to be a teacher, but you're not a teacher. Well, you are sort of a teacher today, but you're not a traditional, I'm teaching kids in a school teacher. Yeah. Why did you, why did you not end up going that route when that was, as the book decided your life's purpose? Right. So I think I don't I think I was still working at Enterprise when I was 22, but I think it was 22 or 23. It was right in there. But you basically explained it. I have been looking for my life's purpose for as long as I can remember. I remember being in grade school, maybe even middle school, wishing I could be in my 30s just so I could know who I was and what I was meant to do. I was so frustrated with not having a clear path. It felt like my friends around me knew what they were talented at, what they were good at, where they were going to go with their lives. I had one friend who was taking the PSATs in seventh and eighth grade. I had another friend who was extremely skilled in math and science. I had another friend who could dance, another friend who could draw. And I just felt like I, I had lots of interests, but I, I didn't have a one set path. And I wished desperately that I could just be in my 30s and know what my life was going to be like. So I've always been looking for it. And and when I read the What Color Is Your Parachute book, which told me I should be a teacher, it, it resonated. I had been teaching people for a long time, just in different capacities. So I applied for my Master of Arts in Teaching, which in the state of Oregon, you have to have a master's degree to continue to teach. And I got into the program that I wanted. And I remember sitting on my bed weeping because the tuition was so high. And that tuition on top of my undergrad student loans that I was paying back, I would never be able to make enough money as a teacher to pay off my loans. And I knew that. And it was crushing. But that was that made the decision to not go into teaching in the more modern, I guess, like secular sense of being in the public school system. So you're a, you're a kid and just yearning to be an adult so that you could figure out what you were meant to be here for. That has to be a very, I mean, frustrating feeling as a kid. I'm curious, like, do you have any sense of where that was coming from? Like, what was, why you were so focused on that? I don't know exactly. It it showed up in lots of different ways. It showed up in applying to colleges. It showed up in my degree in college. It showed up in applying to work for different companies. It showed up in making decisions. Was I making the right decision? I was afraid I was making the wrong decision. But I don't exactly know where it came from. It just has always been there. I've always wanted to know I've always wanted to know basically what my life map is because I was raised that I was raised very Christian and the way I was raised, my family raised me to believe that there's a path for your life, 
but you also have to find it. <laughs> and I was like, well, if there's a path, can someone just print it out for me <laughs> so I can just get on it? And they were like, well, you are on it. And I was like, I don't understand. They're like, well, every decision you make, you know, moves you further on the path. I was like, well, what if some of them are like Candyland and you draw the card that has like a toad on it and you go all the way back to the beginning? You know, how do you know that you're making the right decisions for your so-called path that already exists, but that nobody can give you? It was confusing. Um, and I've, I've truly found that in my 30s, it's like you turn 30 and your back hurts and you're always talking about why your back hurts and you feel more comfortable in your own skin. And that's when I've, I've really started to feel comfortable in my own skin and where I'm going with my life, but I've always been looking for it. I don't really know if that answers your question of where it came from because I'm not even really sure. Oh yeah. I'm just, I'm so curious. So, so now are you still, it seems like you've found, I don't know if you found it yet. I don't know if you feel like you found it yet, but are you still looking for it or is it like, okay, that, you now know the answer that I'm going to create that path and I'm in charge of that path now, or, or do you feel that way? I don't know. Maybe it's still not in your control. To some extent, I do feel I found it with work. I do feel like I found the work that fits for me, the purpose that fits for me. The reason that I'm here in the world is a, is an absolute fit. And it's, I think it's broad and it's going to continue to narrow and I'll have focuses and specialties, but also what's been helpful is being able to see what I've done in the past and look at the similarities and look at teaching opportunities I had the way and strengths I had along the way and my love for books along the way and what that's done. I'm, I've constantly been a curious learner. I love to learn new things. TED Talks really light my brain up because they share novel information. And just being able to see 30 years of that has helped me be like, all oh, right, this is who I am and this is the path that I'm going on. It's still a process, but I now understand, you know, why talking with my grandmothers when they were in their 80s, why they had so much wisdom. It's because they were probably able to look back on 80 years of their life and see the path, see the cairns that were pointing the way the entire time. You just had to look for them and you had to make sure that they resonated with your gut. Resonated with your gut. I like that. I'm a big believer in gut decisions. I know for sure when my gut is unhappy and feels like there's pterodactyls wanting to shred it apart. And I know when my gut feels very pleased, like I have taken a probiotic pill. So I choose the probiotic routes. <laughs> I think we underestimate our gut sometimes. Like we, there's so much, I, I do so many times. It's so funny. Like sometimes it's really simple things, but like, choosing, you know, if you're given two options in some game or something and you've got, you know, your first instinct, like choose this one. And you're like, oh, you start thinking about it. You choose the other one. And the answer was that one. You're like, I should have followed. That happens so often, you know, and it's like, I should have yeah. followed my gut. I think for me, that often happens either when I'm out on the trails or in a foreign country, you're like, I feel like this is the right direction, even though I cannot read this foreign language. I don't know why. But then you're like, it's probably nothing. I'll just go the opposite direction. And then you're, you know, in Beauty and the Beast and she's being attacked by the wolves. And that's the path you never <laughs> should have taken. <laughs> so I, I've seen you mention a few times in different online mediums uh, that you love a good suffer fest. 
that mm-hmm. you enjoy. It sounds like a good challenge. Um, like yeah. and maybe now that we've you know had some time to talk here, maybe it's that sitting in the discomfort that is really powering that. Um, you've run a marathon, hiked more miles in a day than you thought was possible, climbed a mountain, like you said, you've went backpacking recently. I'm. Is it that sitting in the discomfort that's powering that, or what is driving this? Uh, as you put it, enjoying a good suffer fest. I think it's less about discomfort and more seeing what I'm capable of. Mm. So there's something to standing at the top of a mountain. Mountains have existed for far many more years than I have existed, and they will exist for many more years after I am dead. So you have to have a lot of respect for the mountain. So to be able to let it climb you or let, let you climb it and get to the top and not have a storm blow in and be able to eat your lunch with your friends and drink water that ran off the mountain is pretty incredible. It's this physical, mental, and sometimes emotional feat. And I like seeing what I'm capable of. And I like pushing my physical limits. That was one thing that I I did know about myself growing up is that I knew I had more endurance than anybody else. I could walk further, run further, ski longer. I could do more than anybody else if I really wanted to. I just have endurance. And it's something that I enjoy about myself. And it's something I like to test, which is why I enjoy marathons and half marathons. I also like the competitive aspect. And that's why I've really gotten into mountain climbing because you have to have endurance and able to get to the top of that mountain. But it's really, truly a test of what I am capable of, what my body is capable of achieving. That seems to be, I'm, I'm similar. And I, I wonder if that comes from your desire, as you spoke about earlier, to grow, that desire to continue growing, acknowledge that there's always more growth to be had. So maybe continuing to check in on what am I capable of, can make sure you're continuing on that path. I think so. I think capability and growth go hand in hand. I also think that it's a way for me to push past fear. I can be very fear motivated. So it's a way to move past fears. I'm, I'm, I've outwardly said I'm very afraid of bears. I think that's a very normal fear, but I (laughs) (laughs) I just, I am. Yeah. And I, I know that that fear will keep me from exploring areas that I otherwise would explore. So I have to push myself to go explore areas that have bears and take the necessary precautions to be able to handle a bear encounter. But fear will hold you back from a lot of things in life if you let it. And testing my capabilities and forcing myself to grow, I think, lessens the amount of fear that I have. You mentioned that you've always been a good skier. I, I saw that you were ski racing when you were young, like yeah. age 11, you're ski racing. What is ski racing? Is that like the Olympics, like racing down a hill? Yeah, I. it's so funny. I was thinking about that just last night. Yes. So I guess that kind of feeds into the whole knowing what you want to do with, for the rest of your life. If you asked me between the age of 5 and 15 who and what I was going to be when I grew up, I would unanimously have told you I'm going to be an Olympic ski racer and I'm going to be a gold medalist. And not only did I believe that, but I was on the training path for that. I started skiing when I was four. I took to it really easily. I had lessons by the time I was five. And then when I was, I want to say when I was mm, anywhere from eight to 10, 
<clears throat> I was put in racing camps. So a racing camp is where you go ski on Mount Hood, which is one of the few mountains in the world that has snow uh, year round. And you train on the snow. So you ski gates like you see in the Olympics. You ski slalom gates and GS gates and sometimes super G gates all day up until about one o'clock and the snow gets pretty bad. And then you come off the mountain and you do dry land training, which actually is just conditioning, but they don't use the C word because dry land training makes it sound more fun. I don't know, but you're conditioning. And then you eat a lot of food for dinner and you go to bed and you do it all over again for weeks at a time. That's intense. It sounds intense. It, it is like looking back, I was like, wow, my friends didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know it at the time because that was my reality. So yeah, every summer I went to at least two or three camps. And then by the time I was 10 or 11, I was in like fully enrolled in a ski racing team, which is where you race on the mountain and you race against other teams and you start to collect points when you enter a league at age, I think 15 or 16. And that's where you start to get ranked globally against other people. And that's how you make your way to the US ski team. And that was the plan. Wow. So yeah. that was the plan. Um, I mean, I think we could both safely say you did not become an Olympic gold medalist, unfortunately. I did not. What changed then? How come that was no longer the plan? Well, it wasn't the plan because of a couple reasons. So one, 14 and 15 is when you enter high school. And what ski racing required was that you not only trained every Saturday and Sunday, we're talking from October or November through April or May, every weekend you are on the mountain Oof. and Thursday nights were training nights for our team. And in high school, you get social, or at least I got social. I loved my friends. I loved playing soccer. I was a multi-sport athlete. So I started spending a lot more time with friends, but probably the largest thing was that my parents got divorced. And when they divorced, there was just far less ability to ski and go up skiing. So we had to split our time between my parents. So there was no way we could be on the mountain every weekend. So it just kind of died. The ski dream died. Do you ever, do you still ski, like just regularly uh, recreational skiing? I haven't in a really long time, but I got a pair of skis for Christmas and my husband thinks they are ridiculous and I should return them and get a shorter pair because they are, they are racing skis. I took them in to get bindings and every shop in Portland was like, Ooh, we don't make bindings for these. You need to go up to the mountain. <laughs> um, and my husband was like, extremely impractical. You should turn those away. Um, but no, I, I, I absolutely want to go fast. So I will be getting bindings and I'll be going up to the mountain. So I, I go recreationally. I don't think I've been for a couple of years, but I still know how to rip. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I was listening. Um, when we were talking in the beginning, I said I, I cheated and I learned how to pronounce your name from listening to another podcast you were on. I was listening to a podcast you were on and you um, you mentioned something about, I forgot, your past experiences or something, but you said, I love this quote, I was an otherwise intelligent woman except for the fact that I learned early on to say yes to everyone and everything. Mm. And I was curious what you meant by that. 
Oh, yes. Oh, that was such a great podcast. I loved Katie's podcast. So I don't know when I started to recognize it, but at Enterprise, one of the core tenets is that you say yes. You say yes to anything the customer wants. I am not joking when I say this. When someone returns a rental, if you ask them, what could we have done to make it better? And they say, I want you to waive the entire rental fee. You say yes. And you waive the fee. It doesn't matter how long they had the car. It doesn't matter how long, how much money they spent. You say yes. Wow. You do everything in your power to make sure that people walk out of the branch happy, which means you say yes. And that was kind of emblematic of my life. I said yes to everything, even if it was to my detriment. In college, I said yes to two college classes that took place at the same time. I remember my professor looking at me and he said, you can't take this class. You have another class scheduled at the same time. And I was like, yeah, but what if on Tuesdays I came to your class and on Thursdays I didn't come? And he was like, so you're only coming to half the class? And I was like, I could get notes. I could, I could learn from the other people. And he was like, this is also 24 credits. If you just don't take my class, you're only at 20 credits, which is still over the limit of credits and you'll have to get approval. So I, <laughs> I've struggled with saying yes, and it, it shows up in a lot of different areas and it doesn't serve me well. So I'm trying to get better at saying no, but no in a way that feels good to my gut and resonates with me. Because if you say yes to everyone else, you don't have time for yourself. First, I would easily admit, I don't think you're alone in saying yes all the time. I think I know I suffer. I think we all suffer from that. I can definitely relate I'm curious for you, though, what do you think is behind, like, why are we so afraid to say no? I think innately we like to please other people. I think it takes a very strong individual to disagree with someone, especially a friend. There are levels of disagreement. I see disagreement on a spectrum. There's the flat out uncomfortable no, <laughs> all the way over here to... I'm not sure that that works for me, which is a way of saying no, but it's just a little bit more delicate. I think no also is a boundary. And I think a lot of us don't practice our boundaries. I know that I, I only started practicing boundaries when I got a little bit later into high school, but if you're not raised practicing boundaries and saying no to people and practicing those phrases, you'll fall into an easier pattern because your brain likes easy things. And if your brain hasn't practiced no and boundaries, your brain will just say yes say yes to everything, say yes to anything. So I, I think we are innately wanting to please others and we just don't practice the skill. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I do think so much of it, like you said, is the willing or the desire to please others. I think we, we all, I think it's just human nature, right? Like we don't want conflict. So therefore we don't want to, what do you call it? We don't want to, uh, rock the boat. Like even yeah. if there's nothing to rock, we don't want to feel like we might be rocking the boat. So if right. I say yes, nothing could possibly go wrong here. Yeah. I, I do a lot of work with the Enneagram, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a tool to use to figure out how you work and how you're motivated. And I do a lot of work with learning styles and my clients so I can better understand the way that they learn and the way they receive and put out information. And if you are conflict adverse, 
you are probably far more likely to say yes. I think most of the learning styles and I think most of the Enneagram numbers have some piece about conflict. There are very few styles that just love conflict. It's so funny that you mentioned this Enneagram because a previous guest on the podcast, Aubin Cassidy, she brought this up. I had never heard of it. So she sent me this test to take and I took it and I forgot I I should I forgot what numbers I was. But she was like, You have to take this test because it's amazing how like true to to life it is or how, how fitting it is. So I did it. I've never been big on like astrology or any of that. Not that I I'm neutral on it. I'm not like detracting from it. I'm not promoting it. I'm just like, I don't know. And so I took this test, which was like, I don't know if there's only one test. It was like 200 questions. It took took a little bit. And then I got the results and I, she was like, what do you think? Does it speak to you? And I was like, yes. Oh my gosh. Cause you get, you get a main number, right? And then like your secondary wing number. Yeah. And I forget what they are, but um, I was blown away. I mean, I really felt like it was speaking like that was that was a good embodiment of who I am. So it's it's funny that you're I don't know if this is a case of, you know, when you buy a new Toyota, you've seen all Toyotas on the road. So now that I've heard of Enneagram, yep. I'm noticing it more. But I'm I love that you brought that up. It can be a really nice indicator, a true picture of who you are. I've seen people foisted on others and Generally speaking, people don't like to be told what they are or are not. <laughs> so I think it's <laughs> it's better as a self-reflective tool, which is how you used it, and being more introspective on how you work and what works well for you and how you respond to given situations. Like, the, like I said, I can be fear-motivated. There are three motivating emotions on the Enneagram. There is shame, fear, and anger. So there are three types that fit shame, three that fit fear, and three that fit anger. So if you look at how you manifest in stressful situations, typically the manifestation is due to one of those primary emotions. Oh, okay. I just quickly looked up and I was a core type seven. My wing type was an eight, although I don't remember what the seven and the eight are. Ah, yeah. But for for anyone listening, feel free to look that up and <laughs> see what I am. <laughs> Seven is the enthusiast. And enthusiast. The, the enthusiast or the epicure. And the eight, I can't remember what the eight is, but the enthusiast is motivated typically by fear and the eight is typically motivated by anger. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. I didn't. I did not realize there was that shame, fear, anger sort of like base foundation for all 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 the numbers. That's really interesting. The way that I describe it to people is if you're in a car and you have three people, you're one of three and you're driving to the farmer's market and this may or may not have happened to me. So <laughs> <laughs> you say this sounds very specific. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you're driving to the farmer's market. The person who's motivated by anger that's driving in the car with you is going to go, oh my gosh, there are no parking spots. Oh, I hate this. And they are just so upset about the parking spots. And then they explain that it's it's too hot and that, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's hot and there's no parking spots so we're going to have to walk a long time. That's the anger. So then you have the person that's motivated by shame. And they, they too see the parking lot is full at the farmer's market. And they're like, oh my gosh, we should just go. We should, we should never have come. There's no spots for us. I'm not wearing the right clothes. I don't know if I have enough money with me today. We should just go home. We should just, we shouldn't even be here. I, 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 don't, I don't think we should do this anymore. And then you've got the person that's motivated by fear. And that person is thinking, 
oh my gosh, are we going to find a parking spot? Oh my gosh, if we don't get a parking spot, are they going to sell out of produce? Are they going to have the cantaloupes that I want before I can get there? I should just get out of the car now and I should run to the stand. Oh my gosh, did I bring my sunscreen because it's hot? And that's the fear. And those are the three major emotions at play when you're looking for a parking spot at the farmer's market. Upon first glance, those seem like three negative. Like, So are these all driven by seemingly negative emotions? It's your stress point. Yeah. Oh, it's your stress point. I do remember that now. I see. Yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. I need to go look back now. <laughs> I want to see which. That's fascinating because I can see your... I love your example, by the way. This is a beautiful example of the farmer's market and the three different people. I can see pieces of me in there. And it it's sort of embarrassing, isn't it? Like the the anger one... I mean, and I see the problem is members of my family are like that. I think that's how I was raised. I'm better now, but I can see pieces of Tim in the past being that definitely that anger one. But I could see the other the others too a little bit. Yeah, it's it's your stress point, but it's also your your main motivator. You can think about it like you uh, if you're waiting in the grocery store to check out. The person with the shame is like, oh my gosh, this is just taking so long and, and everybody's looking at me. I should just leave. The angry person is like, why is the line so long? Why did everybody come to buy groceries at three o'clock? Couldn't you all have stayed home? So yeah, it just, it's just, um, it's kind of an underlying emotion, just kind of food for thought. But I definitely resonated with it when I discovered that fear underpins a lot of the things that I do. Which is I was going to say it's ironic, maybe it's not, but that you're sort of on a mission here to help people conquer what is, as Jerry Seinfeld says, one, arguably one of our greatest fears. <laughs> it is. And, and I think that's part of it is that there are some public speaking coaches who have this great story about how they were so afraid, or maybe they had a speech impediment, like a stutter, and they overcame it. And now they are this speaker on stages and they can help you do that too. And well, I love that story. That's just not my story. My story is more about fear and self-discovery and self-reflection and knowing that if you want to show up as the best possible speaker that you can be, you have to be authentic to who you are and your talents and overcome some of those fears. You'll, you'll probably not overcome all of the fears. None of us will. But if I can help you overcome some of those fears because I've been through them and that's how my brain works, I'll have done my job. That's got to feel really empowering, I would imagine, but also just good to be able to say, I helped this person. Because I imagine for that person, and you could probably relate, but for that person, that fear was something that was like all consuming. And I mean, like, we've all been there. That presentation we have to give at work, at school, and with the wedding, the, the presentation, the toast, you know, whatever. Like, that's all consuming. That's like, it's the end of the world. It's, I mean, it's, you know, we'd rather be given the eulogy or we'd rather be in the casket than the eulogy. That's how bad it is. So mm -hmm. you helping someone get over that mountain. I mean, I imagine that's got to feel just great. Like, oh my gosh, I did that. We did that. But I mean, I was a significant player. It is the probably single most rewarding part of my job is getting an email from someone or a handwritten letter where they say, oh my gosh, Hannah, it worked. I did it. I accomplished it. And I'm like, oh, it is so, I don't have words for it. It's so exciting. It's so, it makes my heart swell to hear people. That's, that's what I'm in this business for is to hear that from people because 
I think often people seek out external results. You know, they're looking for the newer car or the fancier job or more pay or a promotion or a trophy. And I think we're all kind of consistently searching for happiness and success. And we can buy things externally that will never make us happy or successful. So what people are experiencing when they work with me is they're experiencing internal success and happiness. I was able to do this because of X and I feel good about myself. And that's what I want for people. Because if you're able to have that internal success and happiness, interestingly enough, the byproduct is often external happiness also. Are you a confidence coach? Like, (laughs) do you need, no, I'm thinking like, a successful public speaker won't be successful without confidence and true confidence. So I'm, you know, I almost see like that's the foundation of what you're doing. I was told recently that you can't sell confidence, that confidence isn't tangible, that confidence isn't a result. I was gobsmacked when I heard that because I absolutely I'm selling confidence. You know, that sounds gross. That sounds like I'm hawking my wares on the side of a road. Like, come buy some confidence, like a genie in a bottle. Like, you know, um, what's who, who narrated the genie in Aladdin? Um, Robin Williams. Passed away. Robin Williams, thank you. Yeah, like, uh uh-huh, Agrabah. You know, it feels like that when I say it. But no, that is the pillar of my work is I help people to become confident, authentic and engaging as speakers and presenters, because when you are confident, the world opens up for you, not just in speaking. And that's what I tell some people is it could be scary what you see and do as a result of becoming confident, because you will see that so much more is possible for your life. But yes, I absolutely do provide people with confidence. That's that's a pillar of my work. So when someone told me that, I was like, excuse me? But I'm also, I'm, I'm someone that falls victim to taking other people's advice. I've gotten much better at not taking strangers' advice, but I used to take advice that was thrown at me from anyone. And I've, I've really had to work on that with myself. You know, who is the person giving the advice? As my mom says, consider the source. And is it applicable to my work? So I had to look at where this information was coming from and it didn't apply. And I didn't think that that person knew what they were talking about when it came to my work and being able to tell people that I help them with confidence. That's so hard to not just take every piece of advice that comes your way, you know, soak it up, absorb it, dwell on it. I do that all the time. I love what your mom said. Consider the source. That's, I never thought yes. about that. Like, who's actually giving you this advice? How do they fit into what it is you're working on. I love that. I'm taking that away. I'm stealing that from your mom. She always says that. She goes, consider the source, Hannah Page. I mean, I was I was taking advice from baristas at coffee shops because I was not saying no. I was allowing them, yes, to just talk at me. It didn't matter who it was coming from. And, you know, you, you get some pretty bad free advice along the way of life. So consider the source. Do you know this person? Yes or no? That's a good place to start. Hannah, thank you so much for for chatting with me. This has been so fantastic. I I just love it. Thank you so much. You are welcome. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to We're Only Human. Before you go, I would love to know what you had for breakfast this morning. Just send me an email, tim at we'reonlyhumanpodcast.com, and let me know what you had for breakfast this morning. Thanks.